As a child, I stuttered to the point that uh, if I got excited, I, it, it hindered me from speaking. Because of that, I became what would be termed a uh, social recluse. And uh, this went on the majority of my childhood and into my teenage years. But you're still in the choir at this point. How did that coincide with being in the choir? Yes, interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When I sing, or when I sang then, I didn't stutter. Welcome back to Sustaining Crafts, the podcast all about the journeys of those in a creative industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth Silverstein, and I have with me today Michael Eubanks. That's correct. that right? Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) Uh, Michael Eubanks. Um, What do you do, Michael? Uh, I play instruments, um, uh, mainly saxophones, Mm -hmm. and I'm also a vocalist. And uh, I teach music occasionally to those who are interested in learning music, whether it be a young adult a child, or in the case of the students I have right now, older adults. And you're also getting your master's? Yes, I'll I'll be finishing my master's in the spring, graduating from the University of Arkansas. Nice. And when are you getting your degree in? Uh, My degree is in social work. Uh, However, social work has two different uh, directions you can go in. One is uh, called ADP, and ADP stands for Advanced Direct Practice. The other is called MCP. MCP is Management Community Practice. So I'm an amalgamation of both. I'm interested in doing the one-on-one and the group and families, but I'm also interested in how organizations function, how they're created, the stakeholders uh, that benefit and contribute to the organization, as well as how to evaluate the effectiveness and efficiency of that organization over time. Okay, so you've got a couple of different filled up plates. You're doing a lot. <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a platter. You have a platter, yeah, full a platter, platter, a full, full spread. Um, are you originally from Little Rock? I am originally from Arkansas. Okay. Uh, I grew up early childhood. I was born in Arkansas, but I was born in a very small community that um, years ago I was headed to a conference mm-hmm. in Joan, uh, to uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas. And that uh, conference was on a Friday, so I headed that way, and I saw a wooden sign that had the name of where I was born, a place called Beedeville, B-E-E-D-E-V-I-L-L-E, mm-hmm. and it was a, a nostalgic moment. Well, I couldn't follow that. I couldn't, as we said, I couldn't chase that rabbit right then, mm-hmm. so I decided when I finish this conference, I'm going to come back this way. And I'm going to take the route because I was in no hurry to get home. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited about that because I knew I was born there. I have a very, very vague memory of any, you know, activity there. Or I remember a few things like I think my older cousin fell in an outdoor toilet. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I remember okay. a big berry tree that was in front of my grandparents' house and a mm-hmm. big house on a dirt-like property, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the extent of it. So um, I decided to travel back that way when I came back Mm -hmm. from um, the conference, Mm -hmm. and um, I called my oldest aunt and asked her about different landmarks that I may 
perhaps that she would remember that I may recognize. Mm -hmm. But the population had dwindled down and uh, a lot of vegetation had grown up mm -hmm. in the area. However, I saw that there was a small population sign, maybe 23 people. Oh my goodness. It's one of those places yeah, they say okay. if you blink, you'll miss it. Yeah. It had no stoplight. Okay. You know, you just mm -hmm. go straight through. And, um, but I lived with my grandparents. Uh, my grandmother actually delivered me. She was a certified midwife. And so I lived with my grandparents until I was about three years old while my parents came to Little Rock to get jobs and find a place to live, after which they came back uh, to get me. Okay. And so I was raised in Little Rock. I'm a product of the Arkansas school system from, I guess, kindergarten, mm -hmm. now all the way up to formal education. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're hitting all the degrees. <laughs> well, yeah, I have a little And I'm also uh, a veteran. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have a few different things going on. When did you first start with with music? How did you get into that? Well, like many people in the South, or what we term the Bible Belt, I grew up, you know, going to church and hearing music. But I think I was in children who are born who have an innate ability toward the rhythm, mm -hmm. oftentimes, or have a potential to become musicians. So I'd beat on stuff like kids uh, do, and ultimately, you know, your parents put you in the choir. I could not sing. No. I would speak songs. I would yeah. talk songs. And so um, I started off tinkering around, you know, like I said, beating on objects. And I think my aunt bought me a guitar. Uh, and went from there, uh, I recall the first instrument my mother bought was an organ. And the organ had uh, buttons on the left-hand side where you could push a chord and then uh, you would play the melody, like Silent Night, like, da, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. And so from there, it was piano lessons. And, of course, the quasi-singing, talking songs mm -hmm. throughout my childhood life. And then ultimately, it uh, evolved into something more interesting. From piano lessons, I started singing more. I was really impressed with Lionel Richie. Okay. One of the yeah. first songs I learned to play was... Um, I think it was three times a lady, I think. So anyway, and then it went into um, the first instrument outside of the of my home was saxophone. And I didn't recall becoming interested in saxophone. I recall my band teacher uh, assigning me the saxophone. And it was not until I was an adult to understood how he assigned it. He would look at the mouth, the area of the mandible and the maximal, and look at the way your mouth was shaped. Oh. And um, I was assigned the saxophone, specifically tenor sax, and the saxophone in the case was almost, was just as big as I was at that time. Oh, wow. It was funny. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't realize that there was something so technical that, that went into assignments. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea either. Hmm. That's crazy. And so you continued your music career all throughout high school? I did. I continued uh, playing uh, saxophone. I, I studied and continued piano up until I think around maybe 10 or 11. School kind of took over. I became interested in girls, but I also became interested in sports. And so I ran track, played basketball, you know, and, you know, did what other little boys did, you know, rode my bicycle, ventured, went fishing joined the Boy Scouts at church, you know. So around the 10th grade in uh, high school, I became interested in voice. 
are really interested in girls. <laughs> and so I joined the choir to uh, be around girls. And um, the choir director became very interested in my voice. It wasn't as heavy and pronounced as it is now. But uh, he called He called me in on a Saturday, took me in the back room and started to, you know, give me some individual training. I didn't know why. But now um, uh, he has been one of the um, people in my journey. I am on his board of directors right now. Uh, he's retired from teaching, but he uh, hosts once a year the Robert L. Brack Scholarship Fund. And so a deserving student who comes to a competition and tries out for the scholarship and who aspires to uh, pursue a music degree in education and or performance can come and try out for the scholarship. And a student will be selected and given uh, amount of money, not a whole lot, but something to help along the way. And so uh, in the past few years, Mr. Brack has called me to be a part of the uh, Central High Alumni Choir. He's also called me to perform, you know, as a solo artist to inspire others or to show, you know, what I've achieved as a uh, musician and vocalist. Okay, really wonderful. And there's something I wanted to touch on because that came out in our conversation is this idea of fear. So when you ah, phobos. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we we talked a, a bit about that where there was some fear going into these performances because you yeah. have to go up in front of people. Well, the fear happened before the performances. Okay. Mm-hmm. As a child, I stuttered to the point that uh, if I got excited, and that's from being afraid to being overjoyed. Mm-hmm. I, it, it hindered me from speaking. Uh, research says that all people stammer or stutter. People who stutter habitually uh, stutter because the brain is processing information faster than you can articulate or get it out. Mm-hmm. To include catching air in the vocal box, which is the larynx, is important also. So breathing and processing. So the brain is sending all the information. You're excited or you're afraid and you cannot communicate your thoughts fast enough, and so you end up stuttering or stammering. And so um, because of that, I became what would be termed a uh, social recluse. And uh, this went on the majority of my childhood and into my teenage years, to the point that uh, it was embarrassing. But you're still in the choir at this point. How did that coincide with being in the choir? Yes, interesting, isn't it? When I sang, I don't stutter. When I sing, or when I sang then, I didn't stutter. But as a child, you didn't recognize that. Mm-hmm. You didn't think about any of those things. So I didn't sing in public either because I didn't think in terms of I can, I, I can sing. I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. So there's just different things I did not do. But as far as speaking to people and um, having a long dialogue or starting a conversation, oh no. And because at a certain point, as a young teen, I like girls, I would dare not talk to a girl. If I did, it would be a few words. Mm-hmm. So, so what I learned is that um, if you think about what you're going to say, and you say it in your head about three times, and then you say it to yourself, it'll be easy to say to someone else. Oh, so building in a practice. Of like it is that, and it's also just becoming more sure of yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's about um, 
I guess just being brave about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you find out that you can speak and people will listen. And I think the first time I realized that I had the control of my speech was uh, during my early mil- uh, military career as a young soldier. Well, let's talk about that for a second because you went through this this musical journey throughout mm-hmm. high school and then were you pretty young when you went into the military? Oh, yeah, I was 17. Of, okay. yeah, so 17. fresh out of high school? No, not, okay. out of, not out of high school. So okay. I actually signed up for the military or my mother mm-hmm. had to sign me up. I wanted to. She asked me, was I sure? I said yes. So I actually signed up for the military at the age of 16. Wow. And go so, ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to capture that there. What made you so determined and bound to join the military? Well, there were several things. One is that at 11 years old, I just knew I wanted to join the military. I would m- march around the yard. Um, then I had um, a, an acquaintance, an older gentleman who's a Vietnam veteran, and we would talk. And for some reason, the more he would tell me to stay away, the more I became interested in mm. what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And so um, other than those things, it wasn't about, you know, looking at the war movies. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about, you know, wanting to get a gun in my hand to hurt someone. And I think one of the movies that came out, I love Marvel comics. And I read a lot of Marvel comics and uh, DC comics as a kid. And Captain America, the movie that came out, the first one that came out, when they asked him about his motivation for joining the military. It was not to hurt anybody. It was to stop the hurting. And so my goal was to defend my country, you know. So I didn't know all what that would unfold out to. I didn't even know what it meant. I just knew that I was um, drawn toward it. It wasn't about, you know, um, wasn't about really being seen or being recognized. It was just the idea of being in the military. What I'm hearing you say is that you wanted to serve. I wanted to serve, yeah. And I see that. In a sense, yeah. Yeah. And that's a a theme I think that's also apparent in your life because that's what you're doing with social work as well, is you're helping others. Well, social work, it is a helping field, but it's more than that. It is a field where you empower people. In other words, the goal is to make people autonomous. And so from my military standpoint, the goal is to create a create an environment or participate in creating an environment where people can be self-sufficient and be free to do so. That's really beautiful. It's music it. to me. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, what a lovely thing to say. So it's another way of making music and serving and being there for others. Yeah, it's a way of actually using my abilities and my skills and my experience to give others the opportunity. You know, you cannot keep people from experiencing all the bad things. But I figure if we would educate our society, our young people and our old adults uh, about whatever, then it gives them an opportunity and they might be more inclined to not make the mistakes that we've made in the past. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. So you're 17. I'm 17. And you joined the Army. And I joined the Army. Okay. I'm 16, sign up, and I go... Uh, into the army in the spring it's called it was called split options I don't know what it's called now but that means that you would go to basic training during the summer while you're out of school mm-hmm. so here I am in the 10th grade or ending concluding the 10th grade going to basic training I come back and I come I do the 11th grade which was junior year mm-hmm. call I guess I don't know what they call it now but it was called junior year mm-hmm. and so after Concluding my junior year, I went to AIT, which is where you learn the job you're going to be doing. 
And once you, so you go to uh, basic training, and then next year's AIT. But between that time, not only are you in school, but I was also attached to a reserve unit here in Little Rock. And what is also nostalgic is that reserve unit was on the campus of the University of Arkansas Little Rock. It was the 489th Engineers Battalion. I was in communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, that building now is the maintenance building on ULR. And I was in that maintenance building uh, a few months ago getting a key to my office at the university and I could smell the engine smell from the from the vehicles that were parked in mm -hmm. and again it brought all that memory back a great memory a great mm -hmm. beginning mm -hmm. I was proud of it oh that's wonderful and how long were you in the military I was in the military a total of 12 years okay yeah yeah so that's a, that's a long time yeah and I've lived in several different countries and visited quite a few also. Mm -hmm. Were you able to, to continue your music while you were in the military? That was interesting. So when I joined the military, I just quit doing music. I had no intention of, I figured, you know, in the military, you know, I'm on another journey. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think music was a part of it or would even be anything that I would even think about. Music was what I did in school, it's what we did at home, at church. Yeah. And I didn't think about it. So, um, at some point in time, and let me think for a second, it was, we had to do cadence. And cadence is when you're marching or you're running, and in this case, the drill sergeant, he's singing along and one, two, three, four, one. And so these are rhythms again. We're back at rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so I enjoy that. I end up marching my cohorts to class, and I got really involved in when I got to my unit, I was um, uh, teaching physical training, and they required you to run and sing different songs. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, but I did not recognize it as that. Yeah. And so commanders and other uh, people in authority liked my voices. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was like really motivating. It got me through the run, but it was just really, you know, inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about singing or performing. It was about, you know... I was remembering all these words, and I could change it up, and mm -hmm. people, uh, the morale of the unit was very high because of that actually assisted in raising the morale, and so I, I enjoyed that. So I was inspired by doing music, and I'm trying to think the first time I actually sang in the Army, because I did not play saxophone. Saxophone, I quit playing saxophone. Uh, my second year in high school, because I joined the choir and discovered girls, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't think saxophone was a part of it. So in the military, had you not asked me that question, I would have not even thought about it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember when I started, but I did start singing in the military. Actually, I would go and I would play piano and sing. And I just played around. And it was Lionel Richie again. Mm -hmm. And I learned a few Christian tunes that I would play uh, for a men's group, but I didn't think anything of it, but other people thought that it was pretty good. And so I would, my first sergeant told me that my commander was upset with me because during Easter I didn't come to church and they wanted to hear me sing. Yeah. And I was <laughs> like, you don't tell me what to do. I can go where I want to. And, <laughs> That's a military thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, not on Sunday. Yeah, I'm all, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so um, I ended up joining a, um, a small group in Germany. Mm -hmm. And we 
would uh, perform outside of the area where we were stationed. It was a young lieutenant. He played keyboard and sang. I played backup keyboard and I did backup vocals. No saxophone at the time, but I enjoyed it. And uh, we would we did a lot of pop hits and people were wondering if it was really our voice. I mean, we had together. We would work all day and practice all night until early morning and then go back to work. And so that was exciting. But again, I didn't take that serious. I didn't think it was anything to be concerned about or anything to consider as a career or even continue it just as a hobby. Mm -hmm. The the musicians, the lead guitar bass player and the keyboard player, they said, why don't you stay in Germany? Why don't you perform? And I said, no, no, no. I even gave them my equipment. Yeah, you, you can have my microphone. You can have all this stuff. And yeah. well, that's expensive equipment. Right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's a cheap stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so I came back to the United States, and here and there. Mm -hmm. Was this sorry when after when you left the military? That's when you came back, or so yeah. So okay. after the military, I came back and uh, went through. And how old were you at that time? Uh, in the military? When you when well, I came back to the United States. Oh, yeah. 31. I was 31. You were 31. Yeah. And um, so, and I remember we talked we talked about. I don't know if you want to touch on this at all, but it wasn't necessarily your choice to leave the military. No, no. The military, like any other organization or any job, may have a layoff, yeah. and so they called it a reduction in strength. Mm -hmm. What I did not know historically that whenever the military finishes what we call a major campaign or war or a conflict, then they don't, they may not have the capacity to maintain all of the bodies that were hired for the conflict. Mm -hmm. So what happens now, you get laid off. Mm -hmm. And so it would be the, the type of civilian layoff. Had no idea what was going to happen. I had accomplished a lot of things militarily. I was a non-commissioned officer. I was, I'd been to three different countries, uh, had completed a lot of missions. At this time, I was a dad with a three-month-old daughter oh. living in Italy. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was really, as the Army would say, I was really being all I could be. Mm -hmm. And so there was things that I had achieved in the military. I, I had also started to go to college. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I had achieved some things that kind of make you distinguished in the military, like Sergeant Morales and Master Fitness. I, I was really into these things, going to different conferences and bringing back information to the unit and the area where I live, uh, how to survive in the field regarding sanitation when the weather is in climate changing from cold to hot. And certain. So I was into education. Also, uh, I was involved in recruiting and retaining soldiers career or advising them that perhaps they need to move on out of the military. So I was involved in a lot of things uh, in the Army, and I was happy with that, that. That's what I hear. It sounds like you were really invested in your career. You Very really invested. You loved it. Yeah. But then this this event happens. You're 31. That you, you have no baby, control over, right? No control. Now you're, you're coming back to the States. Yes. So you have to rethink everything that you were doing. Well, yes, and the traumatic aspect of it is that I left here a teenager. I had no knowledge and no experience as an adult in the civilian world. Mm -hmm. I was in a controlled and a closed environment. Mm -hmm. And looking back now, I know that. But when you're in that environment, it is who you are, what you are, it's what you do. It's all you really know. There's a lot of um, almost a family 
environment, from what I understand, of the military. It is a culture. It is more. It's big. It's a whole culture in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I would say we, because I am a veteran, and I do understand how many veterans think we can never be civilians again. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, once you become an adult, you shouldn't act like a child. You know better now. Yeah. So we've been. I use the term loosely programmed, not as a robot, but just a term that we've experienced things that people who are not military will not experience. Actually, I have a couple of siblings that have been in the in the military. So you understand how that I do understand. Um, My my one of my younger sisters, she's passed away last year, but she was going through boot camp. And one thing that she would say to me, thank you. It's it's been rough, but it just it stuck out to me when she was going through boot camp, and I tried to talk to her and try to understand her experience. She would actually tell me she's like, "You're a civilian. You couldn't possibly understand." And I was like, "Whoa." (laughs) Well, that's interesting that she would say that. And let me tell you, uh, when young people go into the military. Some keep quite a level head, but some become arrogant about it. They feel emboldened, they feel proud, and they feel like, you know, this is something that is mine and you can't take it away. And depending on how a person is raised and whatever uh, whatever they had available to them or the lack thereof, when they join the military, it's their coming out. It's a rite of passage. It's, it's something that they can be proud of. And they may become a little bit arrogant and tell you you would understand instead of taking time to explain. Mm-hmm. My daughter's also a veteran. Okay. And so when she would talk to me in acronyms and acrostics, I would say, I, I teach, I gave her a principle. I said, listen, it's no one's fault if words and terms and phrases you use are misunderstood if they don't understand it. It would be the fault of the person who is communicating it because it is the height of arrogance to talk to someone in a language they don't understand without you explaining yourself. Mm. And so I said, do not talk to people in acronyms and acrostics and phrases that you are so excited about, you hadn't considered that they don't understand you. Mm -hmm. And so I do the same thing when I'm speaking of clinical issues with my patients or clients or lay people. If I'm trying to explain to a family how to care for their loved one who is sick, I'm not going to use the terms I use when I'm talking to someone who's in the clinical field community. Mm-hmm. But then if I need to draft up a document that needs to speak to the clinical community, I'm going to use those terms, those phrases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the lingo or, or jargon. That, that, that That's yeah. exactly it. Legal lingo or legal jargon that you need, or clinical lingo or clinical jargon you need to could use and it what it does when we use those terms and phrases in that jargon it paints a picture mm-hmm. when we write we give whoever the reader is a picture mm-hmm. so that's kind of how that works yeah yeah I consider it in my in my field is um, a journey I'm taking you on a journey and I need to take you along every step of the way absolutely and if I miss a step then yeah. that's on me I right. failed in some absolutely. way you know so I want to make sure that the, the journey is complete the picture like right. you mentioned is a complete picture right. and you have everything you need to move forward yeah that's right and that's important sure. to do um, but so you're back in the states you're 31 you've got a baby what do you do where do you go from there I panic oh. I experienced a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. We were trained to not recognize stress. We didn't talk about stress. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about trauma. So you're out processed. In other words, you come through this uh, process of coming back to what we call the block. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I would say you try to hold your head up. You try to be proud. You try to be the adult. You try to play the male role, but you are in a neither world. Even though you're back with the family that birthed you and raised you, you're back with a whole different mindset, a whole different paradigm of what life's about, and you are disconnected. So you suffer what is called disassociation disorder. You're out of you're out of your element. You're out of your uh, sphere, and so you don't know what to do. Are you feeling some fear in that moment? You're feeling anxiety that could lead to depression. Okay. You're sensing. Uh, you know you should do something. You don't know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. You can feel embarrassed. You can feel ashamed. You can wonder, what did I do wrong? Why me and not someone else? Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, a collective of things go through your mind. Because you're, you're a very capable person, right? You've accomplished all these things while you're mm-hmm. in the military. You've done so much. You're ready to move forward, and that journey is taken away. Mm-hmm. And you're basically at square one again. You have yeah. to start over. You're at ground zero, yeah. Yeah. You feel uh, you can feel inadequate, mm-hmm. but I've always tried to find that minute silver lining. What was yours in that moment? My ability to communicate, mm-hmm. my ability to uh, engage people, and my ability to do stupid things. Yes. And let me explain <laughs> yeah, what that yeah, means. Yes, please. So I comprised a resume. You don't want to see that resume. <laughs> so. And I would apply for jobs that I was not qualified for. Because here's the principle. All they can do is tell you no. Mm. So the more I did of this, the more I found out what to do and what not to do. I was so enthusiastic and others saw that enthusiasm. And people started to come along and assist me. So I end up with um, a job at a radio station where I became a representative selling radio spots. To this day, Elizabeth, I have not seen a spot yet. Mm. <laughs> but I would, I would, I would do unique things. I would travel and keep the radio on until the signal fade, and I would market the radio station from that area back to the station where the signal was stronger. Mm-hmm. Then I got into uh, finding. I, I started to wonder why are people going outside the community to get goods and services? when those goods and services are right here. So I started to talk with store owners and uh, restaurants and clothiers and whoever about becoming more visible. So using that communication ability, yeah. but in a in a really creative way. Yeah. So I'm hearing that you really pour yourself into things and yeah. you're thinking of creative ways to use what you can do. I don't like to be mundane. I don't like to be yeah. bored. Mm-hmm. And so I started to become extremely creative. And I did that. And I called a community to recognize that we have those things here. Now, if you want to go to Dallas, if you want to go to distant places just to mm-hmm. see a, see that same thing in a different area, that's okay. However, if it's the weekday and you need something, it's right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're doing all that. How do you start to see music as a, a viable career? Okay, so I did not still. Okay. So when I came back from my last tour, I was in church, and I heard the... Uh, musicians playing and I said to myself if I had a soprano saxophone I know what I'd say musically at this stage in the music I don't know why I thought soprano it just I grew up playing tenor I don't know I probably sucked at it 
but I was, you know, I went on this quest like a appetite. I was hungry for a saxophone. So I did my research and found out that the soprano was very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but that didn't quench the, you know, the hunger. And so I was willing to settle for whatever I could find. So I went to a pawn shop and um, there was a alto sax there. It was a uh, um, brass, it was gold, it was beautiful. And when I saw it, I went, ah, it was breathtaking. So I started using the little money I had put it on a layaway, mm -hmm. and uh, it took me over a year to pay that thing off. And I didn't pay off the last $60 of it. My mother actually paid it off. Mm -hmm. And when I came home from the fire station one morning, on my birthday, she said, go and reach under your bed. There's something I have for you. And it was that saxophone. You just mentioned the fire station. What were you doing? I was a firefighter. Okay. Yeah, I didn't mention that. <laughs> yeah. So if I, my history and the things I've done is pretty lengthy. I have a lot yeah. of experience from teaching, to firefighting, martial arts, yeah. uh, I have a lot of uh, yeah. theology, I have a lot of things that, I, that interest me, mm -hmm. the, uh, how the law, you, um, state law, uh, I have a degree in law and legal assistance, which is really just a paralegal degree, mm -hmm. but uh, it's a, a lot of law research is involved in how to research law, how to, different types of laws, from laws of property, to torts, to tariffs, mm -hmm. to court laws, criminal law, civil law. So mm -hmm. I've been studying a lot. I really enjoy studying. As I said, if we can inform the people, then it gives them the ability to make decisions, inform decisions mm -hmm. that, that allow them to use their freedom in a positive way. And so it requires me to be informed. Yeah, and sorry to cut off that beautiful story, but what a lovely thing for your mother to do for you as a birthday present. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Beautiful. Are you pretty close with your mom? Yes, I'm very close with my mother. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So you get this beautiful saxophone, and you start playing. How does that? <laughs> I start trying to play. Trying to play. So basically relearning some of the things. I'm relearning a lot, but mm -hmm. also learning other things. And so people who learn by ear are called, and I do I do uh, presentations periodically and lectures about a term called autodidactic, mm -hmm. and that's, that means self-taught. Mm -hmm. And so Prince, the late great Prince, uh, is was a genius. He was autodidactic. He could play and regurgitate things that he heard. His father was also an accomplished pianist. Mm -hmm. There are other musicians who were like that and are like that now. Yeah. Um, so I am both of both worlds. I'm autodidactic, but I'm also a educated, skilled musician. That means I can read, I can do some composition, I can teach it, I can perform it. I really enjoy performing, but I enjoy teaching almost as much, but not enough to want to teach school all the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm a private teacher. So. Here I was with that nice shiny saxophone, and uh, I can just tell you the the music that I heard in my head did not readily come out of that horn when I put it to my mouth. Mm -hmm. I had to work at it. I developed my embouchure again. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, I went back to study with one of my teachers who had start, who had taught me privately as a kid, uh, Mr. The late great Lorenzo Smith, one of the only. African-American musicians, performer, composer, and teacher who had 
a music business called Center Stage. And uh, he's passed on now, but as he got older and his health failed, he would ask me to come and perform in places where he would perform. He's the reason I became a performing artist. It was Mr. Smith who saw in me something that I couldn't see. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And that's happened to me all my life, even in the most recent times. There are those who see things that I do naturally that others uh, have to work at. I don't know it. I just, it just, mm-hmm. it feels right to do it. So I just do it. I don't mm-hmm. do it so someone say, hey, look at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. In the last several years, I've started playing flute. And I will study. I I will study uh, formal education. I'll study. I'll start studying. I've been playing flute for the last several years, but I'll go back to formal education and sharpen what I'm doing. I record myself playing. I work hard. I I think I can go to bed about three this morning, just up in my studio, playing flute. And I'll take a song or a couple songs that I'm familiar with, and I'll listen to myself. I used to hate hearing my recordings. Mm-hmm. But I'll listen to myself, and now I can make those adjustments, what we call in engineering, on the fly. Mm-hmm. I can hear what I'm doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. I can hear the breathing, the attack, release, the smooth transition from one to another. I can hear it go flat, sharp. I can hear it kind of fall off. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I can hear what breathing needs to transpire in order to keep the life of the note flowing. Mm-hmm. And I can hear that if you were playing and I was teaching you. That's that's really a wonderful skill to have. Is that that's something that came easily to you? I don't know. I just okay. it just became apparent to me. Yeah. I said, okay, that's okay. That's obvious. And what happened, I guess, is these different worlds come in from me playing mm-hmm. to listening to other players. And so I listen to the other professionals. I try to listen to them without all the effects, sound effects that they have. And I actually have a tuner, several tuners, and I will actually put a tuner next to a CD or a record that's playing and listen for the consistency or the inconsistency of notes. And so I'm always learning. Mm-hmm. What are they doing? What's going on that's normal in music? Mm-hmm. But I try to create a sound that doesn't require all the other um, equipment. So my sound becomes natural. So when I bring in equipment like reverb, like this room, this is called flat reference. The spatial area makes our voice bounce off the wall. I can hear natural reverb, but it's not continuing to do this. And what sound does, it rolls, hits something, and falls off or bounces off. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So that's called reverberation. Okay. What we want to do, we want to have it natural. Yeah. So that if we're going to add to it, we want to amplify it and not make it so artificial. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep things natural or organic. And when I add to things, it's only to make it warmer or bring depth, but keep the realism, keep the natural, you know, the natural sound going. Mm-hmm. Unless we intentionally want to distort that sound by adding more artificial effects. Mm-hmm. So trying to be very deliberate and precise about Yeah, punctilious is the Greek word. Yeah. Like a bow and arrow, yeah. Very cool. Oh wow, it sounds like you've done a lot and you've studied a lot. Still doing. I'm, I'm, yeah. So I tell people we should continue to have a, not an open mindset, but a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. So I say without a, being apologetic, I'm a student of life. Mm-hmm. I will always be a student of life. Mm-hmm. That's really wonderful. Um, so what what are you doing currently that you would love people to be aware of? 
Well, currently I work with veterans. I've been working with veterans uh, for some years in different aspects from mental health and being the voice of the veterans, uh, speaking on their behalf for goods and services that they either cannot obtain or have not obtained or talk about their frustrations of services that uh, they believe could be better. Mm -hmm. And so I've served as vice chair for Veterans Mental Health as a volunteer up until 2016, at which time I was accepted into the master's program. And I knew that I would not be the best fit person to you know, serve in that capacity. And I was asked if I would become the chair, but I thought someone who had more time and more experience than I should, you know, be in that capacity. Mm -hmm. But I've been working with veterans for some time by listening, being involved. And uh, in the last few years, I've been doing music presentations to veteran facilities, the VA hospital in North Little Rock, Fort Root, mm -hmm. and the Veterans Day Treatment Center in Little Rock. I do what's called a musical journey. And what I try to do is look at the era that those veteran men and women lived in or grew up in and find songs that were pretty popular then. And then if they will, after I do a song, just start a little dialogue about what that meant to them and how it made them feel. Mm -hmm. But I always warn that some songs may make you sad, some memories may be joyful, but you also may remember that they came to an end. Mm -hmm. It may have been a separation or the death of someone, but if you on that place, on that journey, would just enjoy, you know, the time you had there or with that person, that, that can be very inspiring. It can uh, add to quality of life mm -hmm. just by remembering good things, you know. Yeah, and so that's what I'm doing currently in addition to uh, finishing my master's degree. And uh, in the month of December, I performed a whole lot. And that's I saw how, some of the, the, yeah, uh, the holidays, uh, people call me to do public performances or private performances for the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I did quite a bit in December mm -hmm. to include relax and work on music and work on other things and really just kind of reflect on what I have been allowed to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> love sleeping. Yeah, sleeping is the best. I love, it is the best, isn't it? <laughs> Especially when you work so hard and then when you can, when you earn your sleep, like yeah. the most satisfying sleep. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, what are some of your goals for the future? You know, Elizabeth, again, I'm open with that. I've been asked at least by two organizations to come work for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of my goal, I'm contemplating, mm -hmm. heavily contemplating, working on my doctorate of PhD. Mm -hmm. I've been inspired by some of my professors to also consider teaching at the university. So there's a lot. I'm like a kid just getting out of school. There's the, the world is kind of open to me, mm -hmm. but I want to take my music with me. I want to study perhaps music therapy. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what all is required, but I've been reaching out to the, um, I think it's called the Association of, or National Association of Music Therapy, uh, Therapists. So I'm looking at that study, and I don't think I have to get a doctorate, and I think I can just uh, do some coursework, and because I have my master's, all my general studies and my other coursework in mental health and behavioral and environmental and social information can 
perhaps be considered as coursework for that. Ultimately, I'd like to be an independent therapist, mm -hmm. but I also want to continue to be involved in developing organizations, evaluating organizations, and perhaps may start something myself. Mm -hmm. I've been told I should. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but continue to, to uh, perform music, write music, and um, serve as an information bank to people and also find people who can mentor me. I want to continue to find people who can teach me, who will uh, mentor me, who will ask the most idiotic questions I can come up with. <laughs> and I'd like to travel uh, again to other countries and learn and educate and be involved in a diverse environment, diverse culturally, diverse as far as age, because I think that each generation can lend and contribute to where we are. That's, you know, our Generation X and Y, Millennial, Traditionals, Baby Boomers. Everyone should contribute because when we close ourselves off and go to our various corners as though we are an island or a community independent of others, I think that's where we lose the um, opportunity and the um, ability to really enjoy what human life is about. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that's all so encouraging to hear too of how it's life we kind of I, I know I get stuck in like oh we just have to have this one career path and you have to continue on it and be successful but life is so much more than that because you get you get stunted or you get stopped Absolutely. or something unexpected happens so just to hear your journey and also yeah. be encouraged in my own that I can yeah. keep yeah. restarting I can try different Absolutely. things. Absolutely yeah. my mother said this my mother said it's okay to have an A and a B plan, but have a C, D, E, and an L plan. <laughs> One of my professors, I forgot his name, but he was very influential. At 50 years old, he went back to school. Uh, he finished school, high school, but he went back to school, and in 10 years, from associate to bachelor's to master's to Ph.D., he did that in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I was really impressed with that. Mm -hmm. Another professor I had in Germany explained that when he had reached his career goal at that job, before that job, he couldn't go any further. Why not go and do something else? If you want to continue to go further, go further. Why shouldn't you go? Mm -hmm. I think what happens, Elizabeth, is that when it comes to the socioeconomic status, we allow that to be the definer of our success. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a sentence. I want you to finish it. Okay. If at first you don't succeed... Try, try again. And see, that's wrong. And that's okay, though. Mm -hmm. If at first you don't succeed, change your definition of what success is. Mm. So I don't look at what other people call success. I'm a recording artist, but I chose to remain an indie artist. Because mm -hmm. I did research and found out that the music industry, whether you're indie or whether you're in the big picture, is cutthroat. People are unkind. People care about their status more than they care about humanity. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that link because mm -hmm. I find a little bit of me in you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to ever lose that. Mm -hmm. And I, although some relationships are toxic, you have to sever them, clean, not tear them up, but sever them with people because it's not going, they are not to be a part of your journey further. They, this has come as far as it needs to. Mm -hmm. And we have to know when to cut it off and be brave enough to do so because we're failing when we allow ourselves to stay someplace where other people are failing. Whether you're manager, 
or employer, whether you are contract or whether you're volunteering. Mm -hmm. You have to know that this is not working for me. And then sit down and ask yourself before you allow your emotions to determine your next move. Mm -hmm. Be intellectual. Ask yourself the why. Look for a pattern. If you trust someone else with your with your feelings or with your thoughts, see if you can find someone to help you think it through. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we're so close we can't see. Uh, one of the classes I had in Germany was called Investment in Excellence. And it was one of the first organizations from an agency called Pacific Institute. And it helped you to think outside the box. All the leaders in Germany had to go to it. And because I was a leader, I went to it. And we learned to do mindful relaxation. So I also teach mindfulness and progressive breathing. But we learned to think past the four corners, past the in-box mentality, you know, in this room. I have tried to get outside of the box, or at least find out where the box is, and get outside those walls. Mm -hmm. If the box is bigger, I want to find where the box begins and end and get outside because there's more to life, as you just said, than the place where we are. And even though we have maybe accomplished or even failed at some things, that does not mean that we are accomplished or will be failures at others. Mm -hmm. So if at first you don't succeed, change your definition of success. It is never contingent on what someone else accomplished. It can be a good measuring stick, but you may go far than the sky. It is not the limit. That's really great advice. Well, Michael, I think that was all the questions I had. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I can't think of anything unless you start something again. <laughs> yeah, this is all really wonderful. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. And if people want to find your music or find more about you, yeah. where can we find you? Well, they can find my music out on michael-eubanks.com and it's all lowercase and let me make sure I spell it for you because my mother spelled my first name wrong on a birthday card one year oh. so and then some people do that periodically and depending on where you are from my last name sounds different than it's spelled so my first name is spelled lowercase on the uh, going to the website mm -hmm. M-I-C-H-A-E-L with emphasis, mm -hmm. hyphen E-U-B-A-N-K-S. Some people uh, changed my E to a U. Some people have dropped the E and thought it was U only. And some people have even dropped the S on the end of my name. Mm -hmm. So you've so, seen it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen different variations. So, and, um, so they can find me, or they can Google mm -hmm. um, Michael Eubanks, saxophonist and vocalist. Okay. And I say that with emphasis because there's a Michael C. Eubanks who's a guitarist. Oh, okay. And there's a Michael Eubanks who is an artist. Oh. So it would so the best yeah. so the best way to find me is and they can find me on the Arkansas Arts Council, mm -hmm. Artists in Education, and Arkansas Arts Council Artists on Tour. Yeah. So I'm hard not to find. Yeah. And they can come to events or they can even consider booking me for their private events or public events. Perfect. And do you have a social media account as well? Yeah, I, okay. I, I, I don't like Facebook as much, but okay. I'm on Facebook also, and they'll find different things about me on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn as a professional when it comes to the aspect of social work. 
Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, this has been Elizabeth Silverstein with my special guest today, Michael Eubanks, saxophonist and vocalist. And Michael, before we sign off completely, do you have advice for someone who's considering um, building a music career? Yes. I've, I got a phone call about 48 hours ago from a musician who remembered me being in the ULR Jazz Ensemble. And he was visiting a music store that just came to North Rock. And I'm teaching at that store as of Monday. And uh, he said he saw my card, so he called me. And he said he had just graduated. And he worked for a organization. I won't say which one because someone went. <laughs> and he didn't like it because he thought that the product that was being sold was being uh, overpriced. And he heard salesmen bragging about how they had taken advantage of a family mm -hmm. by overpricing this product and getting their quote-unquote commission. Mm -hmm. And so I told him that people who think on a higher level of how it is to be human and considering other people, families and individuals who may not have all of the resources, Think differently. We're kind of compassionate. We're not it. We're not idiots. We're not. Um, we're not what I call ascetics. In other words, we're not bleeding hearts. We just. We're just compassionate about how we treat others. Our our conscience does not allow us to, uh, with a certain comfort, go away knowing that we could have done better. And so, if you're finishing a degree, one thing I would say is that you can teach anywhere. You can be a substitute teacher until you find, you know, that place where you really want to be. I taught as a substitute teacher and even as a permanent substitute on a consistent basis. But that will put uh, some finance in your pocket. It doesn't take care of the benefits. But what you want to do is have a source of income. And for someone who's just finishing school and may think about just being around young people because that's our future, right? I would say get in there and see how they think and, and be challenged by trying to get them to see things different and enter a dialogue. Get a conversation going because, as I said, each generation can lend something to other generations. And what better way to learn than be in the company of people, despite their age, color, belief system, uh, uh, sexual orientation? That's not what is important is that you're able to be with other people and hear how someone else thinks. It could be totally uh, diametrically opposed to what you think, believe, or your values, or your system of belief. That's okay. We don't have to argue. We don't have to agree or disagree. Just listen. 